Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope your holidays are going well. And if they're not, if you had a hard time over the holidays, then uh, take heart knowing that they're almost over. Only a few days left. And um, regardless, I'm hoping for everyone it's a safe and happy New Year as we say goodbye to 2022. So I wanted to look back for a little bit on this year because I do think this was a one of those years that really did change history. Um, you had uh, the outbreak of this catastrophic war in Europe and something that many people thought was impossible. I certainly did. And there's just no denying that the world has changed. And we don't know, of course, exactly how it's changed, but we just know that it has. Um, we know that Russia is basically done with the West and is, I think, made peace with the fact that it won't have good relations with the NATO states for, for many, many years, if not decades. Um, and we've seen the process, China and Russia become closer, uh, despite an attempt, I think, in here in the NATO world to downplay that. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think Russia would have done what it did in Ukraine if it didn't have at least the tacit support of China. And we saw Saudi Arabia, which has long been a, a U.S. client state, also show some independence amid a recognition that the U.S. might not be as strong or as you know globally dominant as we thought it was. And unfortunately, it is Ukrainians who are paying the price of all these different uh, power moves um, in a war that really didn't have to happen. And let's just recall that it was a year ago this month, still in December of 2021, when Russia put out uh, some detailed proposals to the U.S. and NATO. And at the core of it was a rejection of NATO expansion to include Ukraine and not the complete with removal of all NATO military infrastructure from NATO states, obviously, but just a rollback to the levels of NATO from before 1998, when NATO expanded to the Baltic states. Those are Russia's two core demands. But on those issues, the U.S. and NATO refused to negotiate. And shortly after that, you had um, a last round of peace talks between the Ukrainian government and the Russian-backed rebels in the Donbass, uh, you know, as part of the efforts to end their conflict uh, that began after a 2014, uh, 2014 U.S.-backed coup. And at those talks, and this happened right just a few, uh, just in the weeks before Russia invaded, Zelensky's government refused to even speak to the rebels directly. So just over a year ago, we were in the final weeks that could have prevented this war. And things would have been different, I think, if the U.S.-led order, uh, which includes Ukraine, had been uh, willing to at least talk. And maybe it would have gone nowhere and Russia still would have invaded anyway. But the fact that there was that lost opportunity, I think, is uh, is just one of those historical questions of what could have what could have been and could this have been avoided? Uh, especially, by the way, when you have recent admissions like that from Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, who says that the Minsk Accords, which was the peace settlement between Ukraine and the Ukrainian rebels backed by Russia was never meant to actually make peace. It was meant to buy Ukraine time. That's She didn't say exactly those words, but I think that, that was the message of what she said. She said that the Minsk Accords were meant to give Ukraine time, not to make peace. Um, so there's that. 
And uh, now where, where are we? Well, you know, we just had Zelensky visit Congress and get praised as the next coming of, uh, as the second coming of Winston Churchill. And um, the people who support the current strategy of just, you know, flooding Ukraine with weapons uh, and not having any, go- any negotiations are getting increasingly honest in their assessment. So let me play a clip. This is Oliver North, who um, knows a whole lot about proxy wars because he was a key participant in the Reagan dirty wars in Central America in the 1980s and was even convicted for his role in Iran-Contra, where basically after Congress banned assistance to death squads in Nicaragua to, to the Contras, the Reagan administration came up with a scheme to basically sell weapons to Iran and use the proceeds of that to funnel aid to the Contras. And, and Ali North was a, a key figure um, in that. And by the way, you know, what's interesting, by the way, is there's actually a parallel in this connection here because what else is Congress banned? Well, it, 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 you know, a few years ago, it banned assistance to the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi uh, Ukrainian paramilitary organization. But of course, are we enforcing that now? Of course not. There's totally USA going to the Azov Battalion. But that's just something that we overlook. And it, it's just interesting that back in the 80s when Congress banned aid to the Contras, people like Ollie North had to come up with this criminal scheme to go around that, to subvert that. And now, uh, even though Congress has also banned assistance to the Azov Battalion, no, just no one cares. Like, th- there's no effort even made to try to like go around it because it's just it's official policy and everybody's on board. So anyway, here's Ollie North talking about what he sees as the parallels between the proxy war in Ukraine and the proxy wars he was involved in under Reagan. And he's speaking to Jason Chaffetz of Fox News. Is that money well spent? The the president's assuring us that he's going to deal with it responsibly, but $110 billion, uh, American people aren't seeing that kind of money. It's coming out of their pockets. Well, it's coming out of all of our pockets, but it's money well spent. I, in my humble opinion, this is very much like what Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s. And I do have some experience with that. I know that makes me a lot older than most of our viewers. But in fact, he, was, he believed in supporting freedom fighters. He did it in Latin America. He did it in Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique. He did it in Afghanistan. Those people were willing, as the Ukrainian people are, to use their blood and our bullets and by the way, most of that 110 billion total between the 45, the 1.7, and the previous 65 over 1. over 110 billion, is spent here in the United States. It's provided to contractors and defense logisticians and the kinds of people who build the kinds of systems that we're getting. So most of that money is spent here in America. Good, hardworking Americans have the jobs, and when you look at that kind of an investment, what would be the difference if when the giant does awake? And that's all, that's all about communist China. It's just not a plug for this book. The idea of it is to make sure that they get the right message and to make sure that Putin gets the right message. No more invasions. And that means the people in Taiwan are going to need the same kinds of weapon systems that we're now providing to the Ukrainian. So that's Ollie North. Um, and wow, there's so much he says there in that, in that uh, minute and a half clip. It's it's hard to it's hard to capture it all. But basically, first of all, he says uh, their blood are bullets talking about Ukraine, which is exactly right. I, I couldn't describe this proxy war better. Their blood are bullets. Yes, Ollie North, you're exactly right. He's celebrating that. I think it's horrible. But anyway, everyone has their own moral judgment. 
And then he says that, you know, what, what Biden's doing in uh, Ukraine is exactly what like what Reagan did in Central America uh, and elsewhere, too, uh, which I also think is correct, because basically for U.S. geopolitical aims, the U.S. is using, uh, you know, foreign forces to undermine its adversaries and flooding a country with weapons in the process and, and causing destruction. And in the process, supporting far right forces, much like the Azov Battalion is a major component of the Ukrainian military. The far, the forces, the freedom fighters, as Ollie North calls them back in the eighties, who the U.S. was supporting were also far right death squads, whether it was the Contras in Nicaragua or the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And he calls them here amazingly still calling the Mujahideen of Afghanistan who turn into Al Qaeda. He calls them freedom fighters and. The fact that he can do so today with no shame, I think, speaks to how much neocons have won. They've won. Uh, they, they are the dominant political faction inside the Washington foreign policy establishment. There's just no doubt about that. Bernie Sanders, who vigorously opposed the stuff that, that Oliver North was taking credit for under Reagan in the 80s, is now in perfect lockstep with Oliver North policy-wise. He wouldn't say it in the terms Oliver North describes it, but policy-wise, he supports all the same policies, supporting all the weapons, uh, no interest in diplomacy. And then amazingly, Oliver North also admits that this has nothing to do with Ukraine. You know, he doesn't bother trying to claim that we're defending Ukraine. He says this is really about China, sending a message to China, uh, because in, in case the giant awakens, um, referring to China. And then he says also, that, you know, keep in mind that all the money or most of the money is going to military contractors in the U.S., which he thinks is a great thing. And he says that, you know, one of the benefits is creating good American jobs. And that's true. But it sounds to me like he's a, he's endorsing the idea of government spending public money to create jobs. And I agree with that. My question to him would be, although I, I know his answer, but I guess my question, my broader question to everybody else with a conscience would be, I mean, do we want to, if we agree with the principle of government creating jobs, which I personally do, do we want that to be spent on jobs that go towards making, you know, weapons of death and destruction or in helping to build something, especially here at home with all the problems we have here? So it's also just really hilarious that people who claim to worship the free market have no problem bragging about creating government, you know, using public money to create jobs, but only when it benefits their hegemonic aims and, and enriches the military industrial complex. So, uh, but that is the, you know, as crude as it sounds, that is the dominant attitude right now in, in Washington. And, um, when I look back on this year, I also think about how liberals, um, and largely because of, uh, you know, six years of Russiagate, but there are other factors too, but liberals became completely enlisted in, this neocon agenda. And here's to just give one example. Here is Mark Hamill. Okay. Mark Hamill is the, uh, actor best known for playing, uh, Luke Skywalker. And, you know, if you, if you hear from George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, what Star Wars was about, Star Wars was initially conceived as a protest of the Vietnam War. Cause, you know, Star Wars w was written in the, in the 1970s. Uh, and came out a few years after the U.S. finally withdrew from Vietnam. And George Lucas talks about how, you know, Star Wars actually was, was written in response to Vietnam. And, and you look at the message of the, of Star Wars, you have the rebels and you have the empire and the Death Star. And that's, uh, he's referring to the U.S. dominated system. So that's 
how Star Wars was conceived. But listen to how Mark Hamill, a Hollywood actor, uh, very liberal, um, I think he means well. Look at what he says about the war in Ukraine. And unfortunately, for this clip, on this, for some reason, there's some music. So we'll have to just bear with that music. But this is Mark Hamill uh, speaking about Ukraine. The way the Ukrainian people have come together in, in, these, in these terrible times. I mean, like you say, we've never seen a sovereign nation invaded uh, by a hostile foreign nation uh, since World War II. I'm going to play that last line just one you- more time uh, because it's uh, unbelievable. He says, well, we'll hear it one more time. I'm just going to, let's see here. Okay. A sovereign nation invaded. Never seen a so- We've never seen a sovereign nation invaded uh, by a hostile foreign nation uh, since World War II. We have never seen a sovereign nation invaded by a hostile foreign nation since World War II. So Mark Hamill, forgetting about the invasions of, let's see, Grenada, Panama, Iraq, twice, uh, Afghanistan, um, not to mention the U.S. interventions in Syria and Somalia, and of course, Vietnam, uh, which is by far the deadliest uh, invasion since World War II, and which the movie he is famous for is based on. So that's the that's just an uh, illustration of of how the liberal mind's been captured by neocon propaganda. And to me, you know, that was a big theme of of the RussiaGate era. You know, seeing how you know the way to resist Trump was basically you were you had to worship the CIA and the FBI and blame every problem in the U.S. on Russia and uh, reject diplomacy with Russia. Well, that's been ramped up when when. Uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and now it's the the jingoism is 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 off the charts, and and so that to me is also a major theme of 2022. And unfortunately for Ukraine, it leads to just um, at least in the near future, no end in sight. The, um, there's no talk right now of diplomacy. That's so that's unfortunately what we're heading into in 2023. Okay, uh, that's enough ranting. Let's take some calls. Brent, you're first. Hi, Aaron. Happy New Year. Can you hear me? Yeah, hi. Hi. So, um, as you probably know, um, I've been challenging you all year. I think this is not the first time I've called in about your stance on the war. And after our discussions, I feel like I agree with you almost 100, actually 100% in regards to the Russian-Ukraine war because because sorry about that um because it's a very complex issue it's not it's not simply just because russia just woke up one day and decided to um get their army and just start killing people it's it's not really that simple and people don't get that like there's a lot you're you explain the cause you're explaining the causes of why Russia did did what it did. You're not justifying Russia's action. You're just simply explaining. And I feel like a lot of people, even in the chat, who think you're like a Putin puppet, they need to challenge you and talk to you to really ex- get your your um, your view on the situation. And um, I feel like a lot of these podcasts, I'm not going to name names, 
they want to be so anti-establishment that they're willing to say that Russia w- was not the aggressor, which I think is absolutely ridiculous because um, they clearly invaded. They only want to acknowledge. They only want. To, they want to be basically. Um, they want to bash on the United States and Ukraine, which I feel is also deserved. But they don't. They want basically want to take Russia's side because they want to be anti-Biden or anti-establishment. And I feel like you you take the right balance of criticizing the U- of criticizing the United States for its uh, corrupt. Uh, funding of the um, war to to benefit the military industrial complex, while at the same time condemning um, Russia's illegal criminal invasion. So I feel like they call you the bus all for the reason for a reason. So I just wanted to say that. Well, thanks, thanks for all the kind words. And yeah, it's a it's a complicated issue, and the problem is you need at least a few minutes to explain the background because the 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 picture that most people get is simply that, you know, Russia is an imperialist aggressor that wants to remake the Soviet Union. Putin thinks he's like Alexander the Great and and also resents the fact that Ukraine has democracy and he wants to crush democracy. That's the standard narrative. And if people hear that, they're going to already have heard that many, many times. So it's it lands with them. But, you know, for someone like me, um, I, I need at least a few minutes to explain the background that's being overlooked, which includes basically you have NATO expansion uh, going to Russia's borders, massively expanding in the, in the late 1990s. And then you have the pledge of NATO expansion to Ukraine and Georgia in 2008 um, and why Russia sees that as a threat to its security for complete, I think, completely understandable reasons. Um, and then you have the war in Ukraine that began in a, in 2014 after a coup backed by the U.S. And you had efforts to stop that war. And you've had, I think, a lack of good faith on the part of Na- on the NATO states in really using their power to make peace. And you have inside Ukraine the influence of the far right, which, they, again, numerically, they're not very large. But in terms of their influence and their muscle, They've had a major role inside Ukraine, especially in 2014. And that makes sense because it was those far right elements that played a major role in the 2014 coup. And then you have also, this to me is the most overlooked part. The U.S. has been killing arms control treaties, which allows it to build up weapons that it points at Russia. So the ABM treaty in 2002, 2003 under Bush, that was killed. And that allowed the U.S. to place missile sites in Poland and Romania. And notice how Russia doesn't have missile sites in Mexico or Canada or anywhere else near the U.S., but the U.S. has them toward Russia. And you, then you had under, under Trump the, the killing of the INF Treaty. So all these factors, I think, led to this war. And this was Russia's way of um, asserting itself. And I don't agree with what they did. I can't support the notion that a you know uh, criminal invasion is Russia's best and only option. There had to be other ways, and I wish they had ex- had tried them. Um, but I'm not going to pretend as if that background doesn't exist. And so that's the position I've been trying to to share over, over, over this last year, and I'm glad you appreciate it. So thank you. Right, right. And a lot of the progressive podcasters, only a few of them, Savvy Sabs, um, for example, like they want to dance around that issue, but you just say Russia was wrong, but... At the same time, the U- the Ukraine and the United States 
the corrupt politics is is absolutely terrible and it's it also is more relevant to the united states because they're sending billions to ukraine yet um there's homelessness here in california like there's in in i don't know if you're familiar with Southern california but in like a city called newport beach there's tents lined up in Newport Beach, California, this is one of the richest cities in in the nation. There's tents lined up on the street with homeless people. Yet they're sending billions to Ukraine. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But you you just say you don't care about appeasing your crowd, your audience. You just say Russia was wrong. The invasion was criminal and illegal, not justified. But at the same time, the background is there. The the yeah. the, the politics yeah. of Ukraine, and the United States, yeah. absolutely yeah. unacceptable, and it's not even reported, not even once in the in mainstream media. So it's it's no. just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but listen, but, let me say though, I you know, in fairness to people who uh, support the Russian invasion or who defend it, I'm open to the argument that Russia had no other choice. I'd like to see the argument made, and I think to me it's something that, um, you know maybe we'll learn like I, for, for example there's just stuff about the background that we just that we don't know about yet so i don't know everything that happened behind the scenes and maybe a case could be made that russia really had no other choice that the war that, that ukraine was about to launch an attack on the donbass and and the and the and the rebels of the donbass did ask russia for help so russia will point to that uh and me and there was going to be the placement of offensive we- uh, weapons systems inside Ukraine. So Russia had to act now before that could happen. I don't think that's the case, but I'm there's no evidence to- of that. Yeah. If there's, there's evidence, if there's yeah. more evidence yeah. that comes out, then yeah. we, we will look at it. But right now there's no evidence. And we could say that about the United States. One well, of Texas, if people, they, they're unsatisfied for some reason, they wanted to rebel. Mm-hmm. And then um, they called for help from Mexico. Like, are we going to start this argument of, we can, we can start um, going down that path like in the future, but it's kind of like, as of right now, there's no evidence of that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I agree with that. And I don't, yeah, I don't want to endorse the concept that uh, anybody can just intervene in any country if someone asks them for help, because, you know, it's on that basis, for example, that the U S justified uh, the bombing of Serbia. Uh, and, Absolutely ridiculous. So. Yeah. 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 So, uh, <laughs> So anyway, thank you, Brent, for the call. And, All right, thank uh, you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, Brady. Hey, what's up? As a as a Texan, I would just like to say, help us, Mexico. You're our only hope. <laughs> well, the, reason we, the reason we have delicious food here in this wonderful state. Right. A lot of beautiful things come from Mexico. Um so shouts out to Mexico. I think they recently um, did some things to decriminalize cannabis. Shouts out to that. But the year in reflection, like it's been wild, man. I feel like I'm watching a movie. Just kind of, I, I, I can't even keep it up with everything that's happening so fast. You know, AI kind of woke up this year. Uh, I just discovered a story about a dark web AI that was activated for a while and kind of like became sentient, and that was really interesting. Um. You know, so I, figured, I wish I remembered what it was called, um, but it was uh, sounded like a government program that kind of went out of control. <laughs> and uh, but, yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, it's like <clears throat> things that I would have paid a bunch of money for back in the day, like talking to someone like you is now free and easily available online, um, getting questions instantly answered. So, um, 
yeah, don't listen to the haters. Don't let the haters distract you. Um, stay focused on what's important. Uh, I have one idea to mitigate the entire Ukrainian situation. Just okay, let's one good idea. Um, and that is whenever we're going to be spending money on war or conflict, any of the sort, whether it's sanctions or anything like that, any kind of action like that, there needs to be a public debate that is moderated by journalists that are democratically elected. <laughs> what do you think about that? Having, having de democratically elected debate moderators um, to have open debates before we fund any military action. I'm on board. I'm totally on board with Let's that. Do it. Yeah, I mean, look at yeah, the, look at the lack of debate we've had over mm -hmm. Ukraine. This has been nothing, absolutely nothing. Yes. Um, on on TV, there's no debate. Um, not even by proxy. Not even representatives of the government. Yeah. Even talking separate, you have to almost make them debate each other by splicing video clips together. You know. Yeah. Whereas by contrast, you know, like I'm remembering now when the U.S. was doing one of its bombings of Iraq in the 1990s, like under Clinton. So not a full on invasion, but one of these periodic bombings. Remember when Madeleine Albright went to some university in Ohio and got like totally called out. Um, and it was awesome. And like that, you know, that was like that. I, I honestly, I think after that event, politicians stopped um, doing events like that. Because it was a live thing on CNN, and um, the audience was so antagonistic, and so I just think after that, um, they just they didn't want to face the people again. Uh, they retreated to their castles. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because that really was the platform for those kind of debates was college campus videos. I remember there was Andrew Meyer who famously challenged John Kerry about the Skull and Bones fraternity. He oh, started wow. asking okay. questions about 9-11 before getting drug out and tased. And of course, now he's a total drooling Donald worshiper. It's the weirdest thing. Huh. Um, but yeah, it, that was, you know, so great to see. Um, and we need something like that. I mean, I, I keep telling people, like, how much would we actually pay? I would drop $200 right now. I'm, I'm broke, you know, but I can make 200 bucks happen for a debate between Zelensky and Putin moderated by you, <laughs> maybe like drag, drag Bill Clinton into the mix as well. Well, that sounds uh, like a good idea. Um, <laughs> that, that sounds like a, any kind of public forum like that on these critical issues would be wonderful. Um, I think that's a great idea and it will never well, happen. But, but they thank are you for motivated sharing. by money. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Brady. Happy new year. Likewise. Force the payout. Right. Uh, let me play. Uh, yeah, I, I have that that town hall meeting. If we have time, we can play a little clip from it because it's pretty amazing. All right, Sterling, go ahead. Yeah, you can play that now. I'm, no, I it's can, okay. It's I'm okay. pretty patient. Okay. All right. Well, Happy okay. New Year, Aaron. Happy and, New Year. Um, thank you so much. You just speak truth to power, and I think we are so in need of more voices doing that. I'm just kind of amazed, really, that the few that we have. Um, so thank God for you. As far as this year, it's just. I didn't think it could get wilder. And I say this every year and it does. And what concerns me is like any wilder though, I mean, than it is now will be like some kind of major war. And so that is concerning. So we definitely, but I do feel like people are waking up like your previous caller, Brent, who was saying, you know, I totally see things differently. Why? Because I'm open to listening to other people. Mm -hmm. And um, so if we have more of that, it would be great. But I did want to touch really into what I find so fascinating about all of this year 
is the rise of BRICS. And, um, you know, it's always the only thing we're ever protecting is, you know, the U.S. dollar, its power, its in, and everything we do is to strengthen it. What's happening now is so interesting because I think when you look back at NAFTA and the whole point of it was, you know, wasn't it going to be cool? We were globalizing and um, but that was never our intent. It wasn't, you know, it was always about the dollar. And when Reagan first talked about it and then the Clintons, um, you never heard a word said about what that did actually to people. Um, So what's so interesting now is where those jobs went to like um, India, for example, and they're doing so well that now they can say we're only going to trade in the rupee. You know, that's that's pretty huge. Um, and it definitely it just weakens the U.S. dollar. Now, with um, Putin talking about possibly he might just be hinting at it for whatever reason, um, a gold backed currency. Um, uh, my concern is they're just going to Qaddafi him at this point. If he does that, um, <laughs> that is a real threat to um you know, I, I just worry about like this just getting any wilder. But like I said, on the other hand, I still have faith that people are waking up and, um, you know, maybe something can can change it. But it's just been a wild ride. I never thought it would happen in my lifetime that we'd be doing this kind of craziness. But if I look back through it, um, it makes sense. I think our greed and our arrogance has just gotten completely out of hand. But I just kind of like it's, people who are going to be like, God, she hates America. I don't. Um, but the irony of being so greedy and doing everything we did with these disastrous wars and making everything about the dollar that now these other nations have power. I mean, what were we thinking? I, I don't know. It's just weird. So interesting to watch. Love sharing with you guys. Um, Aaron, I can't just I just can't thank you enough. And I hope you have a really beautiful new year. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And to you as well. And you know, there was recently an article in Foreign Affairs, I believe. Let me pull it up. Um and it's about how actually it's looking like it says uh, the headline is the the end of the age of sanctions, how America's adversaries shielded themselves. And, you know, mm. much like the change yes. in, the, in the currency system, it, there's, you know, it looks like finally after years of basically the U.S. being able to like shut off entire economies, yes. it's like, uh, that, that countries are growing increasingly resilient. Um, to that, and uh, and the war in Ukraine has exacerbated that because it's forced Russia to get into sanctions evasion mode too. Because of course, the U.S. tried to destroy Russia's economy. And by the way, that's actually a wor- uh, just worth thinking about. Is remember when the war began, or even before the war began, there was so much talk that if Russia invades, you know, the U.S. will destroy Russia's economy. It's going to mm. control twenty mm. percent or so. Well, you know, I think the figures I saw was that the Russian GDP dropped two percent. Which is, you know, that's significant, and Russia's certainly taken a hit. But no, no one disputes now that the sanctions did not go as advertised against against Russia. That the economy uh, of Russia was actually a lot more resilient than many people expected. And, yes, uh, that's yeah. a factor, I think, in in how it's a major factor in in the course of this war because the calculation was that Russia would not be able to weather the sanctions, and so it would have to drop all of its demands. But that's not the case. Russia's economy so far, at least, is being pretty resilient. So, um, and the fact that Russia was forced to join the club of like sanctions evaders <laughs> getting around that, uh, I think will have long-term impacts as well. Absolutely. And I agree completely. It's, um, but I think it's really where we can really look like an evil empire is the like really devastating 
sanctions we have put on other countries. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I don't know. I think it's just coming home to roost all of our arrogance. And um, yeah, well, listen. Speaking of which, um, the you know a place where the U.S. tried very hard to uh, overthrow the government with sanctions, you know, the really harsh sanctions aimed at crushing the economy was Venezuela. Oh. And what what just happened there? Well, the opposition so-called government that the U.S. helped establish has just voted out Juan Guaido, the, yeah. the puppet who the U.S. tried to uh, install, and that was a, that's a major sign of defeat. And Elliot Abrams, who was like the, the Trump, one of the Trump officials responsible for trying to mm-hmm. impose this policy, he is livid. He thinks this is a huge mistake, and he's very upset. So <laughs> that's a case where they tried to use sanctions to get their way, uh, and it failed. It failed. Yeah. And um, the opposition now is basically admitting defeat. And um, that also is, you know, has got to be a major hit to the to, you know, people in Washington who feel as if they can always get their way and install the people they want to and use sanctions in the process. This was a this was a defeat for them. That's but what I I'm saw, talking about. I yeah. saw like when I was in Venezuela, the impact of it. And that was the that was when the sanctions were first starting. But like even meeting people who were like, you know, middle class people who like had iPhones and, and like wanted to really be a part of the West. And they couldn't, they couldn't download the apps they wanted from the, from the Apple store because mm-hmm. their country is under sanctions. So, so somehow we're spreading democracy by blocking kids from downloading apps they want on their phone. Of course, there is much more harmful impacts than that. Um, oh yeah. The sanctions, but that's just one way in which this messes with people's lives. And I saw it for people, people were like, you know, people, for people, especially who aren't that political, they just think, well, you know, like, why do I have to deal with this? Like, why can't I just have the apps that I want? And they blame their government because that's where they live. But um, ultimately, it didn't hurt. It didn't sufficiently uh, weaken the Venezuelan population. The people revolted, which was the goal. And uh, so, so, so now that's that's done. And we'll see what happens next. But um, I, I just that's one example I saw firsthand of how sanctions work. And then, of course, in Syria, which I also visited. Yeah. It's a lot worse. It's horrible. And oh. it's just no, terrible. it's really, it's really disgusting. And I, I just, again, it's always comes just back to the arrogance and we're like the world's bully. And yeah, I, I, yeah really what Syria, that whole thing, it still has, it's never going to be covered in mainstream media no. um, for the reality of what it was. But, and it's just, yeah, it, so much of it is, but I wish people could really wake up because we don't want to be what we are right now. It's just, it just, just doesn't have a, it's just never, it doesn't have a good ending. So I don't know, we'll, we'll, but we'll, we'll have to keep watching it all play out and thank God again, I'm serious when I say this, Aaron, to you and Matt Taibbi and Katie and, you know, some of these people that really speak truth to power because they're not making the more, the money that these, you know, cavers are. Um, and they do it because they just, I, I think you guys do it truly because you just, the truth has to be out there. And I, I just, I'm, I'm still disappointed that so few people do it, but I'm so glad you guys do. Well, thanks. And, you know, it, it's been a really interesting journey for me because uh, that is why I'm in it. And uh, I've always just wanted to, I've all, you know, like my goal in journalism, journalism was always to be able to speak the truth, not have to like water down the things I say just to get published or, or to get a job and it, to, have my, to have my freedom. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't always guaranteed. And there were some bleak years. And I spent 10 years at Democracy Now! And really wanted to go somewhere where I could have my own voice. And uh, but it's it's difficult. Like on the left, there's just not that many opportunities. But in recent years, things have really opened up, and I'm very grateful for that. And it's you know a large part of it is I have the support of an audience now. Uh, and it's so for me, it's been really um, 
fulfilling these uh, last few years. So it's a, the point is, it's a, it's a role I really value and I enjoy playing. So thank you for the kind words. Happy New Year, Aaron. Happy Thanks. Year. Okay, Red. And Red, if you're the, oh, okay, uh, we'll move. Hey, Aaron, you there? Hi there. Yeah, what's up? Um, I want to go back to the Sandinista thing. I've always watched Anna Navarro, like, put on this um, pro-contra sort of thing on The View and all over just Fox News, CNN. I wanted to ask, in, the, in that um, conflict, how do such two different populations come out of the same country with such opposing views? Because I have a few Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan friends who obviously hate the Contras and what they did. Yeah. But then we have Anna Navarro on TV who, who like does this weird kowtowing for the Contras. And I wanted to like sort of understand where would that come from? How do they both come out of the same country with those opposing views? Well, in every country you find deep splits and sometimes they're on um, ethnic lines and sometimes they're on religious lines. And, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're, they're always, or not always, in the, in the case of Nicaragua, there's, there's also a deep sort of class divide. And the Contras basically were the remnants of the, um, of the dictatorship, the Somoza dictatorship that the U.S. supported for many decades and that the Sandinistas overthrew in the late, 70s. And so basically the Contras are basically like a, a, a force. And also, look, the, the, like, I saw this in Syria too. When you have money, mm-hmm. you can always, or you can usually find people to, uh, to fight for you. People who are desperate, who need money, who you can pay good salaries to fight. And that's what happened in Nicaragua where, you know, the U.S. spent a lot of money on this dirty war, and the U.S. is all the U.S. because it's the it's the, it's the Death Star, it's the Empire, has all the money in the world. And same thing with Syria too. Like in Syria, um, a lot of fighters who were recruited to fight for like militias funded by Saudi Arabia or Qatar got really good salaries because Qatar and Saudi Arabia spent billions and billions and billions of dollars. And so there are people show up in these in these uh, low income areas. Like um, there's a refugee camp. Uh, outside Damascus called Yarmouk, where people were just recruited to fight. And a lot of people just took the job because it paid really well. And the, you know, the rebel side had all the money in the world and the coming not just from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but also from the U.S. and its allies too. And so I think that isn't just a way these things happen. And, um, and Nicaragua is a, an example of like where, the U.S. spent all this money in the world, still, though, couldn't break the will of the population who supported the Sandinistas. But finally, in 1990, when uh, Nicaragua had elections, basically, the U.S. gave them the people a choice. They said, OK, like, you can have a free election, but if you elect the Sandinistas again, we're going to crush your economy. You're not going to be able to survive. And so at that point, finally... <laughs> like the Nicaraguan population or enough people gave in and they voted in a, you know, a U.S. backed neoliberal government. Um, and they came in and, uh, you know, imposed all the policies that the U.S. was trying to impose on the Sandinistas, you know, privatization, austerity, all that stuff. But then eventually the Sandinistas were voted back in um, after that. So, um, but that I think is a major factor. It's just the, the huge 
influence that big powers can play on small countries and then use their influence to to exploit divisions right so when we when we in america hire people like um uh anna navarro on cnn do we not have anyone to tell the other side of the story because she's always on there unchecked for most of the time all these years well you know her father was a uh, a contra fighter i think he was a general for, for the Contras. oh okay yeah. she comes from that class Oh yeah. So she says she's perfectly aligned with the United States CIA talking points. Oh, absolutely. And and her husband, uh-huh. Al Cardenas, is like a longtime political operative who's lobbied for all sorts of dictatorships in Central America. Um, all the authoritarian regimes in Central America. I should say all of them, but many of them. Uh, her husband has uh, worked for. And yeah, she was born to a wealthy land-owning family in Nicaragua. And uh, it's the wealthy landowners who hated the Sandinistas because Sandinistas wanted to basically use the country's resources for the poor majority. And that's why they had the church on their side, because the church at the time was also pro poor people. Um, And that's why, you know, the U.S. was supporting death squads that were massacring nuns. And, uh, of course, the famous um, Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. I mean, that's the side that the Contras and their kind in, in Central America were fighting. Ah, all right, I got it. Well, that, that's all I wanted to know. I'm going to, I guess, um, let Saul know to calm down. It's not that serious anymore. He needs to get over it. But yeah, Shana Tova, oh, thanks. Happy New Year. Okay. Hey, Aaron. Hey, can you hear me? Hi there. Yeah. Hi, hi, hi. Hi. So um, I, I'm calling from from Europe, um, from Sweden currently, and um, so I'd like to have a little short rant about uh, my biggest disappointment um, into this organization, this union, um, and especially the European Commission, which I think is the you know we know the US, we know how it's been dealing in with the wars, uh, we know also lots of European members, uh, parts of NATO can be very hawkish, but I think this when way far out um, that many people can understand. I mean, the, the, the role of European Commission is, is, is very kind of vague in America and how these people get in, in like that they're like, you know, technocrats that they get chosen. We know that. But we also know that since the beginning of the, 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 the invasion, um, there has been 3 billion, 3 trillion uh, euros or dollars have been lost from European markets. Um, uh, the, the inflation is just through the roof. And I just wanted to share with you, I found something very peculiarly interesting, at least to me. Maybe it's going to be uh, to you as well. Um, you know about Trilateral Commission? Um, I, I've heard of it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Trilateral Commission, Chomsky uh, has been criticizing it. So Trilateral Commission has been something what is uh, Davos today. It's, uh, it was established in the 70s, so it's between the Western Europe Japan, which was the power of the, 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 the Asia at the time in the US. And uh, it's kind of, you know, behind the do- closed doors, the politics and the, the, the capital, the private capital kind of making their plans and deals. Um, but what is really worrying is that their seat is in European Commission. So their latest uh, report was signed by the vice president of European Commission. So, um, and if you see that, and that worries me, is that, that what you see there is that they're signing in 
um, to American uh, lingo, you know, like the rule base order and all that. Yes. And yes. none of that is in any interest of Europeans. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people are definitely, I mean, here in Sweden, we, are, we lost uh, our anything from 2014 until today. So we lost our salaries uh, for eight years. So all these gains that were, that were done in eight years are completely lost in just couple, wiped out. And, and, and there's many worse cases, I think, in Europe. So, yeah, that's just my rant about uh, disappointment, huge disappointment about the EU, which I was hoping that it's going to stay and remain um, independent in this, in, this, in this whole mess. But uh, no. Yeah, uh, I, uh, it's stunning to me to watch what's happened to Europe, how it's become completely uh, subordinate to the U.S., despite all the harmful impacts of that. And uh, again, and look at, look at what's happening with Nord Stream. So yes, re recently in the U.S. media, there's been two articles. Basically, it's so funny. It's so typical of how the establishment media works. So the initial line was that Russia must have blown up the pipeline. It could only have been the Russians. And now, whatever, a couple months later, now you have the New York Times and Washington Post come out with these long articles saying, yeah, amazingly, there's no evidence that Russia did it. And in fact, what's even crazier is that Russia started to like, try to rebuild the pipeline. Which raises the question, like, if, if it was Russia that, that blew up the pipeline, why would they now be rebuilding it? And they're puzzled as if it's some mystery that, oh, maybe Russia actually didn't blow up its own pipeline. <laughs> um, and it's just this comical game. And, yeah. and Europe, you know, there was recently this article in The Economist that estimated there'd be, like, well over 100,000 excess deaths in Europe as a result of the higher energy prices because of yes. good people, you know. Uh, and all this is tolerated. And... Um, I have relatives in Europe who, uh, who basically see no problem with any of this because they think Putin is a big threat to them, you know? Um, and I think they've been, uh, misled by a lot of propaganda, but that's, that's how they feel. And I imagine many people in Europe feel the same way. Definitely. Yeah. There, there, there are people There are definitely people. I mean, we, we don't have a debate here. Um, yeah, uh, there is no everything is just wiped out. I mean, it's been you know it's so funny to listen European Parliament passing uh, like legislations about protecting the freedom of speech and democracy and the freedom of media and 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 we live in Orwellian times. Seriously, they are telling us exactly the thing that they're doing and they are getting away with that. And 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 when it comes to I was listening yesterday to your release, uh, the useful idiots with uh, Mike Wallace and, and Claire Daly. I mean, they, they, you see there that Europe does not care about your, the environment, the global warming and the, the, the climate change. They're buying the dirtiest possible uh, gas that is to found, which is made the, 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 done by fracking in the US. They're paying it four times the price and they're still happy with this. And, and, and you know, the, the, the level of the indoctrination that has to be for people to put up with that is just, it's just beyond me, seriously. And, uh, yeah, that's 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 my really little rant from this side of the Atlantic. Well, thank you for the rant, and yeah, uh, happy new year. Cheers. Happy new year. Happy cheers. new year to you and your listeners. All the best. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, Amanda. Hello. Hi, Amanda. It's nice to hear your voice this morning. Um, I just had two. Two things. Um, one is you had been 
um, lamenting the absence of an anti-war movement. And I think the anti-war movement is starting to pick up and more people are becoming involved. If it's okay with you, the um, same organization I plugged in October is doing a week of rallies, anti-war rallies from MLK week coming up. The um, United National Anti-War Coalition is calling okay. for rallies across the country. I'll put a link yeah. in the chat for people to, because everybody could plan one if there isn't already one planned in your town. It doesn't have to be complicated. Mm -hmm. It's the week of MLK birthday, so 13th to the, or the 14th to the 22nd of January. I know there's one coming up in February too with Medea Benjamin and Jimmy Dore. And, you know, there's no better New Year's resolution to, than to get involved in an anti-war movement, in my opinion. Well, hey, amen to that. And, yes, there are um, – yeah, I, I didn't know about the Week of Action in January, so that's great to hear. And there's also that rally in February uh, in Washington, D.C., on the anniversary of the, of the invasion. Yeah. Then the other thing is I really, I really appreciate your reporting. And one of the ways that I actually cons consider whether a journalist is actually somebody I can trust is how their position on Assange and whether they know who Stephen mm -hmm. Donziger is. And, and you pass those two tests with flying colors. So I actually have a harder question for you because I tend to believe what you bring me because I know that you vet the information. So how do you deal or guard against confirmation bias in what you're doing? Like the sources that you do, I mean, do, is this something that you, that you wrestle with as a journalist confirmation bias or. I, I just go on my intuition and uh, I, you know, I made the mistake before of like repeating something that someone else says, like especially on Twitter, because it's very easy to spread information, and then realizing afterwards that they didn't actually check their their facts and seeing that they that they got something wrong. So you just you just have to be diligent and use your best judgment. And um, you know, I for whatever 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 reason, I think I have a good I have a good track record of 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 just. I think at least, at least you know, I'm very biased on the suit, but I just think me, me too, I, but I, just, I think I, you do. I just trust my intuition. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's, and that's a totally appropriate answer. I I'm very glad that you are doing, you are in the role that you are because you do it very well. I hope we have well, more thanks. in 2023. That's good news to report. I hope so too. Thanks, Amanda. Happy new year. Hey. Hi there. Hi. Hey, hey to um, I want to say something about what uh, you and Amanda, Amanda were just talking about the, the she called confirmation bias. I like that term. I've never heard it before. Mm. But you know, I think it's um, probably uh, I think you've been exposed to critical thinking. You know, and critical thinking is one of those things that's great in public education if you're introduced to it young. You know, and I think there's no nth degree. You can't get to the end. But as you start to, you know, do it more and more, that you get better at discerning, you know, like yes. you're saying you are and all that. 
Yes. So I just I, I think it's a matter of exposing children, especially, you know, to just critical thinking skills, you know, the questions to ask rather than just taking what the adult says, swallowing it and it becomes, you know, your mantra, you know. Anyway, that was kind of an aside. Um, let me see. I wanted to go back to this question of the Russia invasion. And um, uh, for instance, you ask, you know, you you question whether there's anything else Russia could have done, you know, like, are there other options or blah, blah, blah. You know, I understand that question. And yet, if somebody's outside the lion's cage, poking with the pointy stick, you know, poking in the eye, you know, and what we do, what NATO's done to, to Russia, poking the bear in the eye, you know, when you go so far and you got to say, you said it started in the late 90s, you know, it could have started in 1991, right along with the uh, agreement or 2005. You know, I know Helmut Kohl, it started when only West Germany was in NATO. Germany wasn't yet unified. And Helmut Kohl said that he wouldn't even allow NATO not one inch eastward, even into East Germany after Germany became unified. You know, so it just seems that if you're going to poke and poke and poke and poke and then they're going to respond, you no longer have jurisdiction over how they respond. You had jurisdiction when you were doing the poking, you know, and so. You know, I'm not trying no, to I agree justify, with that. I agree and I'm not that. trying to justify, yeah. and I understand your position of, of just trying to explain or understand, not justify mm. or defend. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I agree with that, I guess, but my, my counter to that would be that Russia still has jurisdiction over its own actions, and it's still responsible for the consequences of its actions, and it's not above, even though it was provoked. And, uh, and and my challenge to that is, yeah. but but it was under existential threat, and even in the UN, all the rules for invading a foreign country, yeah, a sovereign country, there's two exceptions, and one of those exceptions is under existential threat. Russia pulled the two nukes out of you know years ago, out of from our borders because they knew for our security and for theirs that we needed the confidence of. Security security so they pulled them out and then what does nato do you know it builds a couple more in poland and romania where yeah. there's two, yeah. you know and yeah. but the but i guess what i question is i don't i haven't seen the convincing evidence that, that russia was under existential threat from from ukraine now what i will say though is i understand based on their history why they felt under existential threat yes because of course, you know uh, the soviet union 27 million people and it's estimated yes in the second world war. And, um, and now you have another hostile military alliance encroaching closer to their borders. And you do have the missile sites in Poland and Romania, and you have a Ukrainian government that was fighting an ethnic Russian population in the Donbass yes. and not make and, and ignoring its own peace agreements, especially the Minsk Accords. So, which is, right. but, so you have all, a whole litany of Russian grievances that I think are legitimate grievances that I guess, Again, uh, and where I keep uh, coming to is I just don't think that inherently justifies an invasion across a border. I, I think to justify it, you have to show you exhausted all diplomatic options. And the thing is, Russia, I don't think, cares about Western opinion. 
So they don't care about the opinion of people like me. And that's their right. Um, they only care about their domestic population. And if, if you can believe the polls from Russia, it looks like the majority of the population is on board because they saw you know, what was happening in Ukraine as a threat to them and as a threat to ethnic Russians inside, inside Ukraine. But you know, afterwards, like we saw things like Russia, like you know, some Russian outlets were saying that it was, oh, it was about the bio labs, and but so I, to me, even there hasn't been a coherent argument made, at least that I've seen. Um, and maybe I'm missing something because I don't speak Russian, I don't read the Russian media, but I just would like to hear the case made why there was no other option but to but but, but to invade. So I disagree with you on that, that there was no other option and they didn't make a tense. And they've been trying to communicate with us since 2005, at least. And we refuse to communicate with them. I mean, one of the quotes is just like what we used, uh, you know, to go into Iraq, that we won't communicate with communists. Well, that's knucklehead. If you're not going to talk to your enemies, you know, how are you going to solve the issues? You know, and I think he wants a table with just a conversation with understanding. Look understand what our issues were. And I have an open ear. I want to understand what your issues are, you know, like that, an open table, not like Hillary Clinton wants. She wants a table where she expresses, you know, what she wants and you are to take it or not. You know, she's kind of like George Bush, your way, the highway. But back in last October and last December were the last two attempts that uh, Putin made to the U.S. president. And he was making them for years before that. And they were getting closer and closer. And, you know, we specifically refused to talk to him in in in, in um, October and specifically again, even more firmly, December. And December, I think, was the line that said, OK, he had to do something. And then in March, when um, when Zelensky and Putin were going to engage in in um, uh peace negotiations over this with no conditions up front. And what happens? What's his name? Yellow guy from UK. I always want to say Jeremy Corbyn, but I love Jeremy Corbyn. What's his name? Um, Yellow guy. guy. Orange guy's twin, you know, orange guy's UK twin. Wait, so he went over and he said, you know, if you engage in peace talks with them, you. Oh, Boris Johnson. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. The UK and NATO are going to cut off all aid to you. So don't do it. And so Zelensky I know, but that's, but, that's, but that's all after the that's all after the invasion happened. Right. 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 But before the invasion, October and December weren't before the. Uh, and that, the that's refusal, true. That's true. And yeah, the that's refusal true. to implement Minsk. And, and Absolutely you know, true. If you read the yeah. Minsk agreements. Russia was reasonable in all these requests. And also the last thing I want to say is that. um so you said you don't think the Ukraine alone is what caused the existential threat to Russia. I, I, I don't. I, the NATO's eastward expansion, all of that expansion, the last 14 nations yes. Yes. that have gone over there have yes. been what has caused the existential threat. Absolutely. Ukraine was just the last straw. Yeah. Yeah. I got and also listen. and also yeah. even before long before the invasion. Even though they were part of Ukraine, the Donsk regions were were internationally recognized by the UN and everything else as sovereign uh, republics. Even though it was in the Ukraine, they were sovereign republics. Uh, and, when was when was this? Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You mean you mean like a long time ago? No, I mean like um, 
I don't mean in I don't mean recently either, not since this invasion, but for a long time. Maybe it was back in 2014. 2014. No, I, I don't think those areas. No, no, those areas have always been recognized as being a part of of. Uh, well, of look up look up the term um, sovereign uh, republics for the Russia. Dons. Russia recognized them. No, no, it was Ru- the UN. No, the no, UN. No, no. They've been no, recognized. They no, they didn't. But 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 Russia, right before it invaded, recognized the independence of these breakaway provinces. And look, that's a that's a case where actually these provinces were actually trying to win Russia for the last eight years. But Russia said, no, we actually want to see the Minsk Accords being respected. So, um, look, there's right. a lot Russia of... Russia was agreeing to the to what yeah, they agreed I, to in the yes, Minsk, they were. right? Yes, they were. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right. Yes, they were. Look, look, Russia has a lot of grievances that I think are legitimate. We'll just disagree on whether uh, Russia had the right then and eventually to decide that that invasion was the answer. Um, yeah. And uh, but but I'm uh, like I said earlier, I'm I, I'm not so uh, doctrinaire that I'm going to rule that out. I mean maybe maybe there's a case to be made. I just I for me that requires more evidence than at least I've seen. But Red, thank yeah, you for the call. We, and, 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 thank you for the call. We're going to move on because I because we have to go. Soon. Thank you. Happy New Year. Hello. Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, hi, Aaron. It's good to hear your voice. Um, um, yeah, okay, we were talk. you were talking about, about Russia, and then, uh, well, uh, we've had a crazy year, I think, again, again. I mean, we have had a crazy couple of years when, when, when I think, think back all for, uh, since 2014, even before that. So, um, I hope that we will have a year next year without all of this <laughs> let's say it like this let's say it open like this bullshit and with that we will uh, have a life that, that 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 we can just just yeah just a life without fear in the future so yeah and i would like to thank you for your reporting i would uh, like to thank you and and all the colleagues who do this reporting on uh, on on what happens uh, in the world on behalf of us and i wish you a happy new year thank you very much well thank you i really appreciate those uh kind words and well wishes and happy new year to you too okay sam hey aaron how you doing how's it going Pretty good. Uh, just going to switch the conversation over for a second. Uh, I wanted to know what your opinion is on the uh, upcoming or supposed upcoming meeting that might take place between Turkey, uh, Russia, and Syria, and uh, what you think that might lead to or whether it's even possible. Because I know the defense ministries of those three have met. So I wanted, I wanted to know if you had a take on it. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I wish I had followed it more closely, but I've, um, I haven't, uh, cause I'm, I've just been too tied up with trying to, this book I'm working on. But, uh, it looks like Turkey is finally backing off on Syria, uh, realizing it has to get, it has to live with Assad and not try to destroy his country and overthrow his government. Um, and there are some people who argue that actually Turkey was the most like reluctant member of the coalition that waged the dirty war in Syria, which I have a hard I, time believing. I'd say they were they were probably the biggest benefactors. I mean, yeah, I mean that's uh, that's what I thought ISIS. too. Yeah, 
yeah. <laughs> ISIS rose because they were literally selling trucks of oil from Syria into Turkey, and they yeah. had an open po- door policy of like, you want to cross the border and knock yourself out. Yeah, and, and Turkish agents were working with the with the Al Qaeda groups who yeah. were involved in staging these uh, these chemical attacks. So I um, I have a hard time believing that too. But look, regardless, now it looks as if because Turkey has some sort of weird cooperative relationship with Russia, which is strange because Turkey's also arming Ukraine. So I don't really understand the Turkish-Russian relationship, so but I yeah. Think, yeah. Well, personally, I think it's because it, with Erdogan and his rival, the biggest thing is about uh, you know the Syrian migrants, and they want to put them back into Syria. And the other part is uh, they, you know, they're blaming the last suicide bombing in Turkey, which my shortcomings I never really looked into it as uh, you know as one of the uh, attacks from the PKK or YPG or whatever it is. So from my reports I'm reading, it's because they kind of want to have an agreement that Turkey can go into Syria's airspace and just start bombing the crap out of the Kurds. Right. And I'm, right. Like, yes. Here's my thing. I, somebody had asked me, and this is my own take as, as somebody who has, has family in Syria, and I asked them what their views are. Um, you know, one thing I, I found is like, if let's say hypothetically tomorrow Turkey decides to just roll into Syria or whatever, the U.S. is not going to stay there and fight the Turks. That's just not a, a thing they're going to do because when it comes down to it, whether or not they, they care one way or the Kurds about the Kurds, which they don't, they're going to pick a country that is a NATO member and has, you know, our bases and nukes, etc. But my question would be, uh, what do you call it? They're going to have what the CIA had, which is a disposing problem. What do you do with all the groups that are in Id- Idlib, or sorry, the main group, HTS, that's in Idlib, that you know, or the uh, groups that they were part of the uh, what is it the not the Free Syrian Army they changed the name to uh, the Syrian Defense Force or some acronym they have up in Jarablus. What, what are you going to do with all those people? That's that's the question I'm wondering because y- let's say they decide to make an agreement. Well, you have these groups that are hardline extremists that you funded. I don't I don't know how they're going to deal with that those people. That's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. That's that's uh, my thing because I've I've read yeah. several articles and they all say like this is gonna you know do this for the Kurds and there's gonna be some detente. I'm like I'm I'm with you on all that stuff. I'm happy to see it, oh, an end to the war, yeah. you know. But I genuinely think Turkey is gonna have a serious problem because I think those groups in Idlib are gonna think like, oh, you just stabbed us in the back, and those yep. dudes are pretty damn dangerous. They know? are very they are very dangerous, and uh, it's such it's such a mess. And then you also have, um, and somebody mentioned this in the chat, you have Turkstream, which is, you know, Russian energy going to Turkey, uh, which Turkey uses and also profits from because the energy then goes on to Europe. So basically because the rest of Europe can't directly take Russian gas, they're now they're using Turkey to like be the, <laughs> be to do the intake and they get it from, from Turkey. So that's another side to this where Russia and Turkey have an incentive to cooperate, but yeah, all those different different rebel factions, the ones backed by Turkey, um, what, what's going to happen? It's a great question, and uh, but something has to give because Syria is just the like the status quo, just you know, well, I mean, can't it, last. Uh, look, if the if the if they it's kind of give and take because the U.S. the Syrians would be happy to see the U.S. moved out because they could finally get access to their own wheat fields and and oil fields. Just so they yeah. have heating. I mean, the the winter. I was speaking to some of the family relatives, and they're like, they're okay in the capital, but you know, go just a little bit past Aleppo. It is like insane. These people have to like 
bring oil into the house. Like these things are highly flammable. It's, it's, yep. it's insanity. And they're like, this is something they never had to deal with. So they're very like, yes. kind of learning curve, but. There was an article. There, there was an article in in foreign policy uh, about a year ago by a wealthy Jordanian businessman who basically wrote about how he was funding the medical care of a young child who was burned badly burned because his family uh, was was using that oil to heat their home because mm-hmm. they don't have any heat because of the sanctions badly burned and he had to be taken for medical care in Jordan because they they don't have the medical equipment in Syria and. Um, it was just a horrible story, and there's many like that. And it's just, it's one of the ways in which the U.S. is weaponizing winter against Syrians. And of course, we don't hear about it here because, because uh, it's the U.S. doing it, and so, uh, and the U.S. media is on is on board with that policy. But it's, uh, it's just, it, it's horrible. It's, uh, it's horrible. And I, I will definitely be um, doing a lot on Syria in in the coming year. Wow. So, uh, th- thanks, Sam, for the call, and happy New Year. Happy New Year too, and thanks again for your reporting on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lee, you'll be our final caller. I see other people in the queue who've already called in. So, and I'm, I have to go soon, unfortunately. So Lee, you will, uh, you'll take us out. Aaron. Yes. Hi, hi. just real quick. I just, you know, want to echo what everybody says with gratitude for, for you and your colleagues, the way you have the courage to speak. And so in offering just little bits of my two cents worth or some perspective. Um, it's totally in support of, you know, whatever your book ends up being, which we're all eager to buy and give away to everybody, um, et cetera. <clears throat> because one of the, the qualities you have that is so appreciated and distinctive is your, um, calmness and and you're not your sarcasm is never mean-spirited i mean when you're being playful you're not you don't you you minimize things that are polarizing with people and thank you for your patience and let me just share this with you and then i'll get off but it's important because so many intelligent people aren't noticing like what Oliver North is saying and a lot of us remember what a bad guy he is and it's all this um, immoral behavior out in the open and people are the cognitive dissonance dissonance and everything I mean these are highly educated people who don't want to be confused with the facts so when you give facts I appreciate that you try I mean I'm sure it's the your educated Canadian upbringing is a factor in in that you're you're particularly kind while being honest, and you're still not a pushover. I mean, you're still setting boundaries and everything. It's important to, that people listen um, where there is some willingness, you know. And if and if people, I know too many of these folks who are in positions of power. If they hear, they're, they're still, they still have fragile egos. If they hear judgmental tones, I mean, you're, you're a pro at this. And that's part of what I'm trying to spit out is, you know, keep in mind in your Canadian upbringing, you didn't have to worry as much about say your children <laughs> not getting health care in this country it's more dog eat dog and i'm i know i'm generalizing but it's it's way more dog eat dog if you saw ralph nader's old book only the super rich can save us mm-hmm. you know look at that again that's that's this country 
It's yeah. all about what you're on with other people, what you can do for each other's kids. I mean, I've been offered and my kids have been offered positions in medical schools just because of influence that was there in a former life. Mm. And But I was too honest and all the rest. And so my <laughs> situation has changed a lot. But, you know, it's a price you're willing to pay and you just have to gauge you know, what the unintended consequences might be. I'm just wanting to throw that out. I don't know. You probably hear it, but, you know, whether it's you or Jordan Peterson or, you know, there's there's that Canadian thing where I think y'all maybe haven't had a, even though you live on, you know, you've had plenty of experience living on a shoestring, that that, um, survival piece, I mean, the bankruptcies down here, as you know, come from, healthcare issues that people don't bring on themselves. Absolutely. I, I definitely think that the fact that there's a social safety net in a place like Canada has made, um, makes it a more, um, just like a, a bit more of a calmer place that people right. are end up. And uh, right. I try to, you know, I've been very lucky uh, in, in my upbringing and um, uh, everything I've gotten to experience. And I, and I, so, and I try to, I, you know, I really try not to be polarizing, even though, cause I know already the things I'm saying, the arguments I'm making are polarizing enough. So I try not to, uh, you know, bring any kind of emotional energy that could be polarizing as well. I, well, I work, that, you, know, yeah. you, you do the steel manning where you can, and that's a huge skill that you're modeling for other people. Like you're, you're trying to meet people where they are and you recognize Certain thing. I mean, I my father's still alive. He's still totally CPTSD from Korean four tours in Vietnam, and yeah. that has rippled throughout this country, and it's still happening. And yeah. and it's only at the level where you are that we can turn this ship around. Yes. So thank you. Any any way that you can, you know, I mean, the fact that you somebody like McGregor, you can have a rapport with and and just yeah. take take what some of what he says in stride but focus on the credible parts is huge because it's harder for the these the lost souls in the democratic party to to deny the truth of what he's saying he, he's saying these things from experience from having lived among these people yeah for example well, let me say just one thing about jordan peterson to the extent i'm familiar with him i i, I understand aside from, yeah. us, aside from us being canadian i don't I understand. I, my, I myself, I, I having much in common with him, just from what I've seen. Yeah. But uh, I, I know he means something to a lot of people. And well, know, it's the, you know. where, where he filled a void, and and unfortunately, it's he's gotten so he's the profiteering around him has been so extreme that you know I can see why your dad and he you know have different points of view being Canadian you know overlapping fields but and i've already bought two copies of your dad's book because i get one to give one to a friend who's still struggling since vietnam you know i mean that, that and that's and your dad is just one perspective but but part of the good part of peterson and it's again because he doesn't know what it's like to not have a safety net is men down here are just this toxic masculinity crap is just destroy i mean there's so i have a son and three daughters you know, it's just it's so sad to see that you're not supposed to be a charge person for the common good. You know, you can be a take charge man for the common good. And right. and, and that's we need more examples. Yeah. Well, Lee, thank you for all those kind words. I really, really appreciate it. And happy uh, New Year. Happy New Year. OK. And Fahim, since you're in the chat, let's let's take your call. Fahim, go ahead. 
Hello. Hi there. Hey, uh, so uh, one uh, question that I have uh, for you, my Aaron, is how do you think uh, our peace is going to look like between uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine? Because what has gone on? I mean, yeah. like basically uh, um, bloodied uh, the waters uh, to such an extent uh, with churches getting split and, uh, yeah. and all. How is this going to even uh, look like in the long run. And secondly, I just wanted to make a, a point. I, I know you, you get a lot of shit because of uh, 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 folks would say that, well, the Azov Battalion is only a small uh, group and blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the uh, truth to tail ratio of uh, the even the U.S. military, it's one to ten. Uh, so ten support staff for every one uh, combat uh, fighter and even in that the kill ratio is mostly with very specialized hardened uh, units so it's uh, very easy for folks to say that well these little, just this little group doesn't do uh, anything and all, but uh, you know those are the ones who do the most uh, damage so but either way I'm just curious as to your take on my uh, question and yeah. have a great uh, New Year's thank you I look forward to hearing you uh, next year thank you thank you uh in terms of how peace will happen, I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea. I just think there should be an effort made. But as to what a settlement would be at this point, I don't know. Um, and uh, I just don't feel like I know enough to make a prediction. But uh, I just think it's going to be, it's going to just get, get ugly. I think this war is going on for a while. I think both sides think they can accomplish more objectives. So they're going to fight it out. Um and it's scary to think about how this will end because it's it's hard to th- after all this all this bloodshed and death uh it doesn't seem like any side wants to reach any kind of compromise and so that is a bad omen so we'll see um and yeah look the point you made about azov is correct they're not huge in size but they're major in influence and that's just undeniable they were on the they've been on the front lines of the war against the donbass for the last 8 years you can go back to 2015 in the New York Times and talked about how on the front lines of the fight against the Donbass rebels are the neo-Nazi Azov battalion. That was back when you were allowed to call Azov neo-Nazi. Of course, you can't anymore because now we're arming them and supporting them. And uh, that will continue, unfortunately, into 2023. And we'll end there. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate everyone's uh, support and the fact you're willing to spend some time with me. Um, it's very gratifying. I hope you have a great rest of your day and happy new year. And I'll see you in 2023. Bye everybody.